It focuses on the judgment of the beast and the false prophet, these figures that we've seen throughout Revelation. And uh, before we get to that judgment, we get a powerful portrait in these verses of King Jesus, who will return to judge these evil forces. So with that, let's read together Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of the Lord Jesus himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. A couple of years ago, I was driving north on 281, heading toward Lingleville Highway. I got to that very top of that bridge that's over the railroad tracks there. All of a sudden, the music I was listening to shut off, the AC stopped blowing, the engine came to a halt, I had run out of gas. So I coasted down that hill to the intersection there and came to a very complete stop. And what's crazy about that, looking back, is I was surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised. My gas gauge was working fine. It was slowly moving down at the same speed that it always does. 
Uh, That little light in the shape of a gas pump on my dashboard was lit up nice and bright for me to see. I had plenty of warning. My problem is I was not living like I was ever going to run out of gas. I was busy. I had places to go. I thought, I've got plenty of time. I I thought, well, I've never run out of gas before. Yet, despite all the warnings about what was certain to happen in the future, I kept on living the way that I had been living, and I changed nothing. Well, in Revelation 19, we are told about an event that is certain to happen in the future. The king will return to judge. Jesus is coming back. He is going to bring God's judgment upon all those who rebel against him. And he is going to usher his followers into the fullness of the kingdom of God in which he will reign in perfect righteousness. This is certain to happen in the future. So the question is, how are you going to change the way that you're living today in order to prepare for the day that the king returns to judge? If you don't claim to follow Jesus, what are you going to do with all of these warnings that Jesus is coming back to judge? If you do follow, if you do consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, are you living today like you're going to be following King Jesus on that day that we just read about? These are the questions that I want us to consider today as we walk through Revelation 19. So here's the main point of this sermon. Here's the truth that we must respond to. The king will return to judge. The king will return to judge. So how will you respond? Well, let me offer two responses from this passage. First of all, follow the king. Follow the king. So verses 11 through 16 of this chapter are a portrait of the king who is going to return to judge. And these verses are packed with details from this symbolic vision that John saw of the returning king. And we're going to walk through each of these details. And as we do, I I want us to see and and not get lost in all the details, not get lost in all the complexity. I I want us to just see in the the simple reality that all of these details are pointing to Jesus' authority as king and his power to judge. John saw this scene, and it's a scene that the people of God have been anticipating for generations It's the final coming of the Messiah, God's anointed king. Uh, Think about some of the Old Testament passages that pointed forward to this. Psalm 96 and 98 looked forward to the day that the Lord would come and judge the world in righteousness. Joy to the world, the hymn is based on um, Psalm 98. Uh, Isaiah 11 described the spirit-anointed Messiah who would come to judge with righteousness. And, And so after all that anticipation, imagine how exciting it must have been for John To see this in verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness 
he judges and makes war. This is the king we're waiting for. This is the king who will make everything right in the world. He's riding on a white horse, prepared to wage the final battle. He's faithful and true. He's righteous, not only in his judgments, but in how he wages war. This king is not waging war against an undeserving opponent. He is righteously defeating enemies that deserve to be vanquished. John sees in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, you might remember this is how Jesus appeared to John back in chapter 1 when he came to tell John to write Revelation. And it's a picture of how Jesus' eyes see everything clearly. There there is not one dark corner that Jesus' eyes can't light up. Nothing is hidden from his sight. This is the one who is returning to judge. He will judge everything. Nothing will fall through the cracks. He will judge perfectly because he sees all. John says, on his head are many diadems. A diadem is a crown of royalty. So many diadems shows his sovereignty His authority over all kings, all kingdoms. This king who will return to judge has authority to judge. He has authority over all. Uh, We're told he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, Jesus is identified by several names in this text. Faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings, lord of lords. Uh, The idea here is not that Jesus has like a secret name. Naming in the Bible is often associated with having authority. Uh, You can just think of how Adam named the animals because he had authority over the animals. Well, Jesus having a name that no one knows but himself is a statement about his authority and how no one has authority over him. He's king of kings, lord of lords. Verse 13 then begins what is really a graphic picture of Jesus' coming judgment. It, It says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And this is connected to what John says in verse 15, that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. These details are based on a picture of the Messiah's judgment from Isaiah 63. A winepress is a place where grapes are crushed in order to make wine. But in this picture, The grapes are the enemies of God, and the wine is their blood. The Messiah is in the winepress, treading his enemies with his feet, and the blood of his enemies is spattered on his robe. This is the seriousness with which God takes sin, This is the king who is coming to judge. Verse 13 goes on to say, the name by which he is called is the word of God. As we think about the word of God, you know, for centuries, God spoke promises about the future. Promises through his prophets. He made promises about 
his future judgment that we see here. He made promises about his future salvation. He made promises about the future kingdom. And in Isaiah 55, 11, God said, My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so as we think of Jesus being called the word of God, what we need to recognize is that when this king returns to judge, he will be the physical manifestation of the fulfillment of God's word. God will not fail to keep his promises. He will do everything he said he would do. And the proof of that is in the coming of King Jesus. King Jesus, this rider on a white horse, we see is not riding alone. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The armies of heaven are following their king into battle. And notice that these armies are wearing fine linen, white and pure, just like how earlier in this chapter the bride was described as being clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. And so what we see is that the armies of heaven are the church, those who follow Jesus as king. We've seen over and over in Revelation how not only will Jesus return in victory, but he will share his victory with his people. Because he conquers, we conquer if we trust in him. Verse 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, So here's another detail we saw back in Revelation 1 when Jesus came to John. The, The weapon that Christ will use to strike down the nations will be the weapon that comes from his mouth, his word. The one who is himself, the word of God, will defeat his enemies with a word. This verse is also a fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 2, 8, and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The king will return to judge. And the nations who stand against him will be dashed into pieces by his iron rod. So verse 16 then sums up this description of King Jesus by saying on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There have been powerful kings, powerful lords all throughout history, but there is only one king and one lord who reigns above them all. And at the end of this age, there will be one king standing, King Jesus, the king who will return to judge. So here's this portrait of this king, a portrait of the the one who will return to judge. And what I want to highlight in this portrait of the king is that right in the middle of this portrait, we see where we should want to find ourselves on that day. We should want to find ourselves following the king on that day. So then what does it look like to follow the king? Let me offer three practical ways to follow this king. First of all, follow him in faith. Follow him in faith. 
The armies of heaven are clothed in white and pure linen. But as we saw in the vision of the bride, those who follow the king don't get that white and pure linen all by themselves. It's granted to them by the king. On our own, we are not worthy to be in the king's army. On our own, our garments are stained by sin. On our own, we deserve to be crushed in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Because on our own, we are sinners against God. But our king, who is coming this second time to judge, came a first time to be judged. The one who sees all our sin took all our sin on himself. The one who will tread the winepress of God was crushed under the wrath of God the Almighty for you and for me. He spilled his own blood to wash our garments white. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, we can be numbered among the armies of heaven. He offers us forgiveness and cleansing. He offers us a place with him as a free gift of his grace. And we can receive that gift through faith. So turn away from sin. Stop acting like you are your own king. And turn to Jesus to cleanse you of your sin. And trust in him as your king. Follow him in faith. Second, follow him in truth. Now, the reason I say follow him in truth is because of what is written Back in chapter 2, I actually think that Jesus gave some of the application of Revelation 19 in Revelation 2. Back in that chapter, he wrote a message to the church in Pergamum, and he addressed it as him who has the sharp two-edged sword, just like he's portrayed here in Revelation 19. And in that message, with that imagery, he rebuked that church for tolerating false teachers among them. He said in Revelation 2.16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So part of following the king now is following him in truth. He is the word of God who will judge the world by his word. And so it is critical that we steward his word Faithfully, we must be faithful to what God's word says about Jesus. If he is who he says he is, then we must not say he is anything or anyone else. It's, it's tempting to be embarrassed of the parts of the Bible that are less comfortable than others. I'll be honest it's a struggle for me to preach these chapters of Revelation that we've been in. Chapter 14, 
judgment. Chapter 15, judgment. 15, 16, 17, 18, judgment, 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 judgment. And by the way, chapter 20, judgment. I look out on first-time guests, and I just kind of cringe. Oh, man, are they ever going to come back after this? I look out on weary church members, and I think, can't I just, like, preach Psalm 23 today, please? But we must be faithful to God's word. And we must be honest about everything Scripture says about Jesus. I mean, if, if Revelation 19 is really true, if Jesus really is coming back to judge like this passage describes, then God forbid I shouldn't tell you that this says this. You've got to know this. The world has to know that this is true. If we only ever talk about a soft and cozy Jesus, that might make you feel comfortable today, but it will leave you totally unprepared for judgment day. We have to be faithful to all of what God's word says about Jesus. That's part of what it means to follow the king who will return to judge today. We've got to follow him in truth. We've got to be faithful to what God's word says about Jesus. And that means we need to be faithful to what God's word says about sin. You know, the false teachers in Pergamum, this, one of these churches that received Revelation 19, uh, the false teachers there were teaching that what God says is sin is actually not sin. But if we are going to follow the king who is returning to judge, we have to be honest about the sins that Jesus is bringing his judgment upon. We're not doing anyone any favors by downplaying sin. Oh, you know, no, it, it's not anger. She was, she was just stressed. Oh, bending the truth, that eh, is just politics. Uh, Same-sex couples just, just want to have love. Again, downplaying sin may make you feel comfortable in the short term. But if we don't deal with sin as sin... And we're in in for a rude awakening when Jesus returns to judge. We have to be faithful to what the word of God says about sin. So follow King Jesus in truth. Third, follow him in obedience. In Revelation 2, after writing to the church in Pergamum, Jesus wrote to another church that received Revelation, the church in Thyatira. And to them, he identified himself as the one who has eyes a flame of, like a flame of fire. So again, just like he's portrayed here in Revelation 19. And, and what his flaming eyes saw in Thyatira was idolatry and immorality. So he called the church to repent of their worldly works. He called them to follow him in obedience. And he promised that those who follow him in obedience would reign with him, the king, forever. Uh, He says uh, to them in uh, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 2, the one who conquers, who keeps my works or follows me in obedience until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And catch this, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And so he's telling this church in the first century, those who are going to be with me in the armies of heaven, who are going to rule with me, who are going to share my victory, are those who today follow me in obedience, who keep my works until the end. That's part of what following Jesus is now, following him in obedience. He is the judge who is going to give to each according to their works. Uh, We saw earlier in chapter 19 that the fine linen that the church is clothed in on that day is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we should follow Jesus in obedience. You know, if, if you want to follow Jesus in obedience, you could take out a list and, or make a list of every sin that the Bible says is, is wrong and just make a complete list and just go through your day making sure, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do any of these things. And, and you can make a list of all the commands of Scripture and walk through your day just saying, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm going to do all of these things today. You could do that. Or you could just ask yourself a simple question. Who's the king right now? Who's the king right now? As you wake up, who's the king of the way I'm starting my day? As you interact with your family, who's the king of how I'm talking right now? Is Jesus king? Or am I acting like I'm the king? As you go about your day, school, work, who's king of what I'm doing? Am I living to please Jesus? Or am I living to please those around me? When you come home at the end of the day, who's king right now? Who is bowing to whom? If you bow to King Jesus, you don't need to keep lists in your pockets. A heart that submits like that will pour out a life of joyful obedience as you delight in following the king. John said in Revelation 1, 5, and 6 that the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood has made us a kingdom. So let's follow the king. Let's follow him in faith, follow him in truth, and let's follow him in obedience until the day that we follow him into final and eternal victory. And that leads us to the second response to the truth that the king will return to judge. Anticipate the king's victory. We want to follow the king and we want to anticipate the king's victory. So, as we've seen, John sees the king returning to judge. He sees him in all his power, his majesty, his authority. King Jesus has come from heaven to earth to wage war and his armies are riding with him into battle. Then John looks up in verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So again, we have this graphic picture of the judgment of God. This heavenly messenger calls the birds of the earth to gather together for this great supper of God. 
This scene is actually first described in Ezekiel 39, which is a prophecy about the final end times battle. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to Revelation 20. But the scene described in those later chapters of Ezekiel is the scene that we're seeing in these later chapters of Revelation as well. Under the authority of Satan's evil forces, the nations of the earth gather to war against God's people. But God powerfully defeats the nations, and this paves the way for him to dwell with his people in peace. So here the angel gathers the birds because there's about to be a sea of flesh for them to feast on. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, all men. The angel is anticipating the deaths of every person on earth who does not follow Jesus. Earlier in Revelation, John saw a vision of these same people cowering in dread at this moment when King Jesus returns to judge. Back in Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, John saw this. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The king will return to judge. But before the king brings God's wrath, the nations assemble for war in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So you'll remember that the beast is a symbol for how Satan works through kingdoms and governments and through the military powers of nations. The beast is this daunting enemy who looms large throughout this church age. It exercises the power of Satan. It has authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, Revelation 13, 7 says. The whole world worships the beast. John sees the beast and all the kings of the earth with their armies, and they're ready to make war against King Jesus and against his church. And again, we've seen glimpses of this throughout Revelation. In chapter 11, we saw the beast make war on the two witnesses, the church. In chapter 16, we saw the beast assemble the kings of the whole world for the battle of Armageddon, which is what we're seeing here. In chapter 17, we saw the beast and the kings of the earth make war on the lamb. So this is just yet another glimpse of this final end times battle that we've been seeing glimpses of over and over throughout Revelation. When the Bible depicts the end of the age, this, uh, a consistent theme is this final battle. All the forces of evil, all the people who give themselves to the forces of evil, all assembled together against Jesus, against the church. That's here in Revelation. It's in the prophets like Ezekiel, like I said before. It's also in Psalm 2, which we read from earlier. Psalm 2, 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So we see this over and over and over and over, but we also see over and over again that this battle will be over in an instant. Look at verse 20. 
And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So here's this ferocious beast with the entire world under its power. Here's this captivating false prophet with the entire world under its spell. Yet immediately they are seized by King Jesus. No struggle. No back and forth. Immediately he throws them both into the lake of fire and sulfur, into eternal punishment under the wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 21 then tells us what happens to those who follow the beast into battle. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. King Jesus, with nothing but a word, slays all who have rebelled against him. And just as the angel said, John sees countless corpses littering the earth and the birds feasting on their flesh. King Jesus will return to judge. All the forces of evil will do their best to resist him, but in the end, Jesus will have the final victory. Not one rebel will be left standing. And this passage calls us to anticipate the king's victory. I believe we ought to anticipate the king's victory in two ways. First of all, resist the rebellion. Resist the rebellion. You know, in the first half of this passage, we saw where we should want to find ourselves on that final day, following the king in his army. But here in this second half of the passage, we see where we should not want to find ourselves on that day. And that is among the armies of the beast and the kings of the earth. On that last day, you do not want to be on the side that opposes King Jesus. So don't oppose Jesus today. Now, of course, very few people would ever say that they oppose Jesus. But you don't have to be taking up weapons and waging a literal war to be an enemy of Jesus. In reality, rebellion against Jesus is usually pretty subtle. In Philippians 3.19, Paul describes enemies of Christ, and he uses a couple of phrases that are really helpful in illustrating just how subtle rebellion can be. He says of enemies of Christ that their God is their belly. And that just means you do whatever you feel like. It means you follow your desires, your cravings. And you might not necessarily crave terrible things. Maybe you just want to succeed in your career. Enjoy entertainment and leisure. The problem is if your desires are your God, the Bible calls that rebellion. What God wants is for us to crucify our desires and to live for what King Jesus wants for us. In that verse, Paul also says that enemies of Christ have minds set on earthly things. And that just means living for this temporary life 
instead of living for eternity. It means living for achievements in this life. It means that even the future that you care about is really just whatever's going to happen in this world after you're gone. It means not really giving much thought to what happens after death, to judgment, eternal reward, eternal punishment, and really to what God has to do with any of that. So again, in practice, rebellion is usually pretty subtle. But that's why Revelation 19 is so important. This symbolic vision of the global evil army taking up arms against Jesus is meant to wake you up to the reality of what rebellion is. Jesus wants us to see in vivid colors that what we usually just treat like a normal earthly life is actually rebellion against the king of kings. So resist the rebellion. If you find that you're living for yourself as king instead of living for King Jesus, repent. Repent today. Give up your life and your dreams and your little kingdom and find your joy in living for the kingdom of Christ. Lay down your weapons and bow to King Jesus. Resist the rebellion. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, please come talk to me afterward. Second way to anticipate the king's victory is to hope for justice. Hope for justice. If you are in Christ, the day described in Revelation 19 is a day to hope for. On that day, every sin that has burdened us will be finally dealt with. Every tempter that has ever seduced you will be silenced. Every enemy that has ever violated you will be brought to justice. Every oppressor that has ever persecuted us will be defeated. So let the promise of that day, the hope of that day, shape the way that you live your life this day. When you face injustice in this life, let the promise of that day protect you from being crushed with hopelessness. When you are angry at sin against you, let the promise of that day relieve your desire for vengeance. When you struggle with temptation, let the promise of that day give you hope to keep enduring and following Jesus. When you mourn over the evil that we see throughout the world, let the promise of that day give you hope that one day the king will bring evil to an end and he will establish his reign of perfect peace and righteousness forever. So anticipate the king's victory. Resist the rebellion and hope for justice. The king will return to judge.
how will you respond? What do you need to change in order to live today like that day is coming? What do you need to stop doing? What do you need to start doing? What do you need to believe in light of that day? There's no reason for that day to surprise you. You know the king will return to judge. So be warned. Be hopeful. Be ready. Father, your word has been spoken. Your word to us has entered our ears. It's entered our hearts. And Lord, I ask that however my brothers and sisters have been touched by your Holy Spirit today, Lord, that they would be faithful to respond. Lord, as we move on to other things, as we move on to life, as we move on to interacting with one another, as we move on to a ministry fair and to singing and the rest, Lord, I I pray that we would not rush past how you have spoken to us today. Lord, I pray that those who are feeling conviction of sin, would know the joy of repentance. Lord, I I pray that those under the burden of hopelessness would embrace the hope of Christ's coming. Lord, I I pray that those who find themselves behind enemy lines would experience the power of your grace to bring them among the number of the army of heaven. Lord, for those who are idle or complacent, I pray that your grace would move, that your Holy Spirit would work to shake them from their slumber and to live with fervor in following King Jesus. Lord, I pray that the the vision of the coming King who is returning to judge, who is returning in victory, who is returning in triumph, would change us, that we would not hear your word And just stop there. But Lord, that we would be not only hearers, but doers of your word. Lord, that we would be shaped by the reality that King Jesus is coming back. Lord, make it so in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, in our community, in your world. Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. In his name, we ask this. Amen. Let's all stand together.